Higgy, thanks for coming on again. Hey, uh, thanks for having me again. Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm joined again by Guy Rambo. So I wanted to jump in first and talk about your article that just came out about the distribution of apps. You have a, a couple of new apps out, but primarily AirBuddy, right? I think that's the one you primarily talk about in this article, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So why did you choose to distribute the app outside of the App Store? Well, it's not like I had a choice, really. <laughs> and uh, I go into that a little bit in, in my article. But basically, depending on what kind of Mac app you're making, you can't basically distribute in the Mac App Store. And that's because in the Mac App Store, you are required to sandbox your app. Uh, but at the same time, there are other limitations as to like, what Apple considers to be a, a good app and things like that. And, and this is not saying that my app is not good, but what I mean by that is, uh, and uh, th- this is something, I don't remember if I if I talked about this publicly before, but someone from Apple actually reached out to me right after I released AirBuddy in 2019. And they were like, hey, why don't you put this in the Mac App Store? You just can't show any images of Apple products uh, and things like that. So, And then I was like, uh, well, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, because they're very restrictive in, in the App Store. Like you, you can get away with a little bit, but like uh, to the extent where everybody goes, where it shows like 3D animations of, of Apple devices and things like that. I'm not sure they would like that, but that's a minor thing. Uh, the major one is it needs to be more like a, a, a system agent, uh, which means it runs constantly in the background. And in order for the helper app that runs all the time to be able to talk to widgets and other things. And also there's some stuff with the Bluetooth stack that I do, which uses private API. Oh, okay. So it's basically not a good fit for the Mac App Store, um, which I mean, would be great to be able to put it in the the Mac App Store. In fact, since version two, which I released in November, which is a huge update, the helper app uh, in everybody is actually sandboxed. So I was able to sandbox my helper app and that was my choice to sandbox it just to be a better citizen of the platform. And I think it also makes users, uh, at least more tech-savvy users, trust your app more if it's sandboxed. So I did go into seeing what I could do to to be able to work with it being sandboxed and I was able to pull that off, which made me happy. Yeah, I was thinking like with AirBuddy, I've used it quite a bit and I love it. It it would be like the Bluetooth stuff, which sounds like some part of it is that. But for the most part, it sounds like it's more of a legal marketing thing with the image image use. Right. Yeah. And also, of course, the the private API stuff there, there really is no way to implement AirBuddy to the extent that it works now without using any private API. Like you could get a lot done but not to the level that it is right now. So uh, that's why why I chose to release outside the, the App Store. And of course, there are other advantages, and, and I go into that in the article. Like you, you get to do paid upgrades, you get to do updates without worrying that they're going to be rejected for some random reason and things like that. And also, uh, I mean, now we have the small business program, which is amazing, but uh, still, if you're, 
releasing directly, you get to keep a, a bigger piece of the pie. I was going to ask you that. You had, it took you five minutes to get to that part, <laughs> but yeah, I would I would think that would be a factor. But would you ever feel like I'm going to put in? If everything else was working out, like would you put in the app store and be willing to make that that cut of fifteen percent? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I I I like the app store as a means of distribution. Uh, of course, it it comes with its problems, and we all are painfully aware of them. But it's still a trusted place where users go to download apps, right? So uh, yeah. I think having your app in the app store is definitely good. And I do get sometimes people will like tweet at, at me or something. Oh, I couldn't find everybody in, in the app store. Where is it? And then you have to send them the website. And I I am aware that there are there is a portion of users out there who are not willing to buy apps outside the app store. But mm-hmm. given that the Mac is has been this way for a long time and especially if your app is more attractive to more tech-savvy users, which is the case for everybody, I think you're going to be fine there if you choose to release outside the App Store. Or you can do both. Like for FusionCast, which is uh, another app of mine for the Mac, I have both options. I have it both in the App Store and also you can buy it from the website. And even though buying on the website is cheaper because I am uh, using a lower price on the website, given that I pay a lower cut, mm-hmm. basically, to to the to Paddle, which is the, the system I use, I am using that to the benefit of, of the, the customer. But even then, it sells way more in the App Store than it does directly. Because I, I guess it's just more convenient for users like you just touch id and you get the app and that's it i think people like that uh, that it's really easy to buy an app in the app store that's that's really interesting and it makes a lot of sense yeah i'm right now i've got speculate in the app store but now i've been working on uh, switching it over to use auto renewable subscriptions and all that stuff. And, and so, yeah, the, the benefit is there to putting things in the app store. It seems like over trying to distribute itself. Yeah, definitely. And if you're on iOS, you have no choice basically. Uh, and I, I do think that the app store is a good place to sell apps. Definitely both on the Mac and iOS. It's all about measuring the pros and cons and and choosing your poison, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, I want to let you know that BrightDigit has openings for new clients. BrightDigit is my company, and we specialize in development in the Apple and Swift space. We're doing a lot of work helping clients update their apps for iOS 14, macOS Big Sur, and watchOS 7, as well as doing some recent server-side development in Swift with Vapor. Now is a great time to get started updating your apps. If you're interested in having BrightDigit help your team, reach out to me, leo at brightdigit.com, or go to brightdigit.com to learn more about how we can help you get ready for the big updates this October. Thanks again for listening to our show. So I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself and what other apps you've built uh, for those who don't know who you are. Yeah, so uh, I've built uh, a bunch of stuff, but more recently I've been focusing on AirBuddy 
and uh, Fusion Casts, which are two Mac apps. Everybody helps you with your AirPods and other headsets. And Fusion Casts helps with turning a podcast into video. So those are two very different apps. And I also have this app for iOS, which I've been developing with a, a partner since 2016 when the iMessage app store came out, which is called Chibi Studio. And it's for creating these cute little characters uh, from the uh, anime culture, which are called chibis. Uh, so those are my three main projects. And of course, I also do uh, speaking at conferences uh, when those are happening, which they're not right now. Uh, but uh, I've done some online stuff in, in 2020, which I really enjoy doing. And I, I do plan on doing more of that this year. Uh, we're, we're all adapting, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same here. And then you're also, are you doing any podcasts right now? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I do the, the Stack Trace podcast with uh, John Sandow, and it's on the 9to5Mac website, and we do it weekly. And that's uh, a place where we talk about our work, what we've been up to, and also we explore Apple news, rumors, and, and things like that, but from a, a more technical and a developer perspective. So speaking of the podcast, you talked about your new MacBook, and I think today is probably the day we'll both gush about our new M1 uh, hardware. Uh, briefly, what do you think of the new your new MacBook Air? Oh, I love it. Uh, and I think anyone who follows me uh, on Twitter or, or even on Instagram, I've been posting stories of the, the new Mac. Uh, so what I had before was the top of the line 16 inch Intel MacBook Pro. That was my main machine. And how old uh, was it? Um, like a year, maybe a little bit less than that, probably. Okay. Uh, and um, when Apple announced the new Macs, so my plan was, and it, it kind of still is, but but there there's a, a little bit of a change there. So my plan was I'll get the maxed out Mac Mini, the M1, and that's going to be my main work computer for like the next year or something. And I'm also going to get a little entry-level MacBook Air to be my mobile computer. So if I want to do something while sitting on the couch or something, I'll use my, my little MacBook Air. And uh, for delivery reasons, um, I, I don't have my Mac Mini yet because those are, are back order and I'm getting them from the US and I live in Brazil. So there's a whole logistical thing that happens there. Yeah, right. And so I don't have the Mac Mini yet, but the MacBook Air uh, I already got, and it's the entry-level one with, uh, I think the only difference is that it has the 512 gigs of SSD. I think the entry entry one is 256, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah so, so. But then I got this, this MacBook Air, and um, it's better than the 16-inch top-of-the-line MacBook Pro in, <laughs> in pretty much every aspect I, I i guess the only two things you can say that are better on the 16 inch macbook pro are the number of ports and uh, the fact that the 16 inch macbook pro has a larger screen so if that's really important to you 
then you'll have to like use a, a display or something. But other than that, I I haven't really touched my 16-inch MacBook Pro since I got this MacBook Air. Like I'm doing everything that I need using this machine, and I'm actually starting to to think about selling my 16-inch MacBook Pro because I don't need it anymore. Yeah, I, so. I have upgraded from a MacBook Pro uh, that was 2015. And I'd been waiting to upgrade it for a while. And then it was just like, okay, when I saw the pricing and I saw what came out, I was just like, yeah, okay. Like at first I'm like, I'll wait a little bit and see what else they come out with. But I'm just like, what am I waiting for? And I don't know with you, but like with delivery, it was a little bit strange because it, they say it would come by a certain date, but it probably came about, about five days later, um, which wasn't too bad. But when I got it, it was just like the speed is so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, whatever you've heard, it's just like, yeah, it's so much faster than I mean, obviously from what I had before. So for me, it was a big difference. <laughs> but like I would say it's at least on par with my iMac, if not slightly faster in some some areas um and that's pretty amazing because i've never had a macbook air macbook airs are always kind of considered the cheap like entry level laptop but like for me it's like wow this this cheap entry level macbook air is on par if not faster than my imac and that's that's just crazy to think about yeah absolutely uh and uh i was a little bit concerns with my expectations because everyone was going crazy about these new uh, laptops uh, and uh, in a way that kind of gives you some expectations right and and when you finally get it uh, maybe your expectations are a little bit beyond the actual reality but even though my expectations were really high I was still surprised like I, I wasn't expecting it to be this good. Like I wasn't expecting to be able to do all of my work on, on this machine and not feel like it's slow. I was a little bit worried about the, the RAM because I got the 8 gig model. I know you got the 16 uh, gig yep, one. Yep. But uh, it, it really hasn't been an issue for me. Uh, and of course, every person has their own workflow. And I am one of those people who tends to not keep a bunch of stuff going on at the same time. Like the most I, I, I keep running concurrently is like Tweetbot, Slack, uh, Safari, and Xcode. That's yeah, like my... Same. That's exactly the same thing with me, yeah. So I don't know, maybe if you keep like 20,000 Chrome tabs open uh, all the time. Uh, although I've seen some YouTube videos where people actually did the test and it was fine like <laughs> it didn't really uh, have an issue with that and not only is it fast but there's something that's very hard to describe but uh, I, I can I, I'm I think I, I can call it like it's not sluggish in any way like the Intel Macs can be uh, so I used my 16 inch MacBook Pro yesterday uh, I was um, collecting some some stuff from it, which I, I hadn't transferred over to, to the new machine yet, which I set up from scratch. And mm. like opening a Finder window is sluggish. Um, it, it's not like w when I'm using this M1 MacBook Air, 
it feels almost like using an iPad. Like when you yes. use an iPad, no, that's, you don't expect that's exactly things it. to. Yeah. There's no beach ball on iOS. There you <laughs> and, go. Uh, yep. I've barely like. It's snappier. I've seen a one or two beach balls since I got this uh, this MacBook Air, and and that was it. But like you click something and it opens immediately. Like it, it's like using an iPad, pretty much. Right. And I mean, there's things like compiling or doing encoding, like obviously that takes time. But for the most part, the things that you think would take instantaneous pretty much do. Whereas on Intel, it's like you said, like there's possibility even copying a file, you're going to end up with a beach ball at some point. Like it's just it happens, whereas it never happens on the M1. Yeah, exactly. And and even little things like I mentioned, opening a Finder window or, or launching an app, like on my Intel MacBook Pro, I'll sometimes like click the Notes app in the dock, and for some reason that will beach ball for several seconds be- before it it opens, and it, it never happened on this machine. And uh, we are very sensitive to any lag, so even if it takes like half a second or even less than that, like a hundred milliseconds for something to happen, uh, which should be instantaneous. Uh, that's enough to pull you off sometimes. So let's talk. I want to talk a little bit about speed. So like Xcode definitely takes faster for me mm-hmm. as far as like compiling. If anything is slow, I do a lot of stuff with Swift packages so it's like accessing stuff on the network might mm-hmm. take a while. That's what I've found. But as far as like, which is obviously has nothing to do with the chip, but, um, but as far as like compiling, it's faster, if not like it's, it's probably faster than my iMac as far as compiling is concerned. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, I, I happened to receive mine, um, quite close to the holidays and I did do a, a big holiday break so I didn't really launch Xcode a lot but now that I, I'm back at work and, and working on my apps uh, even simple things like autocomplete in Xcode uh, famously Xcode will sometimes like after you use it for a while autocomplete will just stop working yes I've noticed that actually very recently like I've had to like close Xcode and restart it yeah, I have to do that all the time. So, but on my 16-inch MacBook Pro, let's say that on my 16-inch MacBook Pro, MacBook Pro, I can work for like an hour with before it it starts doing that. On the Mac MacBook Air M1, it takes like four hours before it does that. So it's still a problem in Xcode, but it's uh, alleviated a little bit by you using <laughs> the M1 chip. So I think. Uh, these sorts of things are, are really cool. And uh, as well, um, there's um, there was, I think, more in the beginning before everyone got theirs. There were these people like, no, I, I'm a pro. Like, I, I can't use this thing. And um, to be honest, I was a little bit like that. I, I was skeptical. Like, um, come on, I'm a pro. I use After Effects. I use Pixelmator Pro. And I use Xcode. Everyone who... every Xcode Apple developer thinks that their project is like the biggest project in the world for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently in the process of leaving uh, the jobby job, uh, which is how I call it, which is the I actually work part time for a company, but I'm actually leaving. And um, the that app is one of those like huge apps, like with a ton of Cocoa Pods and it has 
a bunch of Objective-C and Swift uh, mixed together. Uh, the project has been in existence since like 2012 or something. So it's a huge project. And, Is this an iOS project? Yeah, uh, it's, okay. a, it's an iOS. And uh, so I did some, some testing uh, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like a clean build on my 16-inch MacBook Pro took like nine minutes and on the new MacBook Air, it took like seven. So it was perceivably faster. Uh, does the project have, besides Swift, it, it must have like some Objective-C, right? Yeah, a bunch of Objective-C. How about like, what what other code does it have besides Swift and Objective-C? Anything else? I mean, I'm sure there are some dependencies that have like C++ and things like that. Um, okay. But it's not in the project itself. But it has a lot of inter communication between like uh, import so-and-so underscore swift.h that sort of stuff yeah. and yeah kind of large bridging header and that's the sort of thing that tends to make really slow things down slow yeah 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 i, I, I was just curious because yeah that 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 wow that's pretty amazing so do you here's my like work situation uh, or you know my how my work is usually set up um, right now I'm talking to you on my iMac and my iMac is my primary multimedia produ- production machine. It's my standing desk, which I, I like having a standing desk. It's what I use for like final cut pro things like that. And then the laptop is typically used just for like code, like blogging portability, things like that. I never do like I do some uh, pixel mater, you know, I do that maybe, but I don't, try to do a lot of like intense video editing or audio editing or any of that stuff on the laptop. But it sounds like you do a lot more like multimedia stuff on your new MacBook Air, right? Yeah, I haven't done any After Effects yet uh, because that's something I do more sporadically. I'm sure that by the time I need to use After Effects, there's probably going to be a build for Apple Silicon. But I'm using... Adobe Audition, which I use to edit Stack Trace, and uh, I've been using the uh, non-optimized version, so the the one that's running via Rosetta. Rosetta, yeah, and it's still like as good as or even better than on my uh, other MacBook Pro, so it's doing fine, really. So I was away uh, from my office a couple of weeks ago, and I just wanted to finish uh, an edit. Um, and I put out those so like social media videos uh, that I use uh, FFmpeg to build. And I did it. Uh, I decided I was just going to do it on the laptop. And then I found that there was a build of FFmpeg that worked on Apple Silicon. Somebody had posted on GitHub, and I'll share it in the show notes. Um, so I got that working, and I was like surprised at how much faster it was just to run these like FFmpeg that makes my videos um, kind of like what Fu- your Fusion Cast does on my M1 it was like faster than what it was on my iMac. Like usually with my iMac, <laughs> it's just like okay. I'll let it build those videos and I'm going to go do something else. But on the Apple Silicon, like it was probably about like three quarters of the time that it was on my iMac. And I was like amazed at that. Um, Cause that takes a lot of like video, like creates, you know, images, it produces the waveform that you see on the video, all that stuff. And it's like, wow, like that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And no fan noise. Right. Even better. Right. <laughs> I mean, so th- there was a thing is like, what, 
I don't know if it was a limitation of shipping, but what, why did you go, why did you go with the MacBook Air as opposed to the MacBook Pro? Yeah, so uh, I, I thought that the MacBook Pro would be overkill uh, for what I was wanting to do. Um, so again, my, my plan is still to use the, the Mac Mini as the, the main computer on the desk with a display and, and, and keyboard and trackpad. But uh, so I thought I'll get like the best one, which is like the top of the line one currently, which is the M1 Mac Mini. And by top of the line, I mean top of the line within the M1 family. Uh, and get also the entry-level entry one laptop that I can use around the house when I, when I want. Uh, and it's also good for me as a Mac developer to have both the entry-level and the top-of-the-line because then I can like test things and see if there's any difference, which, to be fair, there aren't like many differences uh, <laughs> in the benchmarks. Like, the I think the main difference between the MacBook Air, especially the entry level one, and the other computers is GPU power. Um, the right. MacBook Pro and the the Mac Mini seem to outperform the the MacBook Air significantly in terms of GPU. But depending on what you're doing, you're not going to notice the difference. For me, it was I don't need I don't want a large computer. I want the smallest I can get because I want portability. It's, is the most important. If power is important, that's what my iMac is for. And then the other thing was, yeah, the lack of the fan actually, it was like kind of a selling point to me because I was like, like I want, I also sold my iPad pro. So I was like, this is kind of a replacement for both the MacBook pro and the iPad pro. And I liked having a simple thin device that didn't have a fan on it. Um, And so it made that like just made total sense for me is like, I don't care about, touch bar i don't care about what else is there i don't care about the fan i don't care about gpu i don't do multimedia stuff on it and it was just like yeah like and i saved 200 dollars. let's be honest like that, <laughs> that was part of the deciding factor too it was just like yeah. wait i get all this and i save 200 dollars. so uh yeah i ended up going with that and then yeah i got like one i got the one terabyte if I was really comfortable with that. I had a two terabyte hard drive I installed on my MacBook Pro uh, last year, and it was just like overkill. So I was like, yeah, one terabyte's sufficient. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, I like it. It's a little getting used to the like trapezoidal shape to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like, I like how small it is and thin. What I don't, well, I like the size for carrying. I don't like the size for the display. Yeah. I mean, it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make, but man, I, I do feel like going from my 27 inch iMac and then going to my MacBook air. It's like, man, I, I this is the same thing I felt about my, my iPad pro. That was like a 12.9. I was like, man, I could always use more screen, but like the portability is awesome. And I really, I really like that. Yeah. And speaking of displays, uh, let me make the, the rent I always make on, on every opportunity I get. Uh, it really bothers me that Apple doesn't make a display for regular people <laughs> anymore. Yes. Like the, yeah. the Pro Display XDR is amazing. Don't get me wrong. Like I, I love it. I don't have it, but I, I love the concept. I love how it looks, uh, even though it's controversial. But it's it's too much. Like I don't need all of that. And that too much costs too much as well. Uh, and for a developer like myself... Uh, I can't justify the cost of a Pro Display XDR. Uh, so, and when you look at the other options, all of them are so ugly and have so many drawbacks. 
that like I really wish Apple would make display for developers, for instance. Uh, I don't know, like thousand bucks, maybe between a thousand and two thousands, but not six. Could you get like a used iMac and like turn it into a monitor? I'm wondering what what you could do. Isn't there like a way you can use an old iMac as a monitor kind of? They used to be a thing, uh, but I, I don't think that's possible anymore. I think it was called target display mode or something. Yeah, okay. Uh, but even then, like, if it would be an iMac, I would want it to be like a 5K iMac or at least a 4K iMac. Uh, I want a retina display, basically, that I can use um, because I really like the, the retina look. Uh, and uh, yeah, the thing you mentioned is true. Like the, the main compromise you're making when you get the MacBook Air is the, the size of the display. And um, I'm running it on the standard resolution that it comes with. Uh, but normally, like on my 16-inch MacBook Pro, I have it set um, to the like one-to-one resolution where every point is exactly two pixels. I think that's the the math. I, I probably mm-hmm. I might be getting that wrong. But anyway, it's the one that looks more crisp and and that looks native basically. But by default, it comes with um with one that gives you more screen real estate. But on the MacBook Air, I couldn't do that because then I would lose too much space on the screen. And and that would make using it a little bit more tricky. So you keep talking about getting a Mac Mini. What what display are you going to end up getting for that or use for that? So you see that my rant is uh, precisely because I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't oh, know okay. what display I'm going to get. Hey folks, I wanted to talk to you again about app figures. You probably already know them about their analytics and their app store optimization. App figures really is about giving app makers the tools they need to get more downloads and revenue. Well, now app figures can help you track competitors from how many downloads they're getting and how much money they're making to their audience demographics and which SDKs they use. Their competitor intelligence really gives you great context. Say a competitor adds like a new feature or was mentioned in the news recently. With app figures, you can see if that brought in more downloads right away. Got a great idea for an app or a game? Well, with app figures, you can figure out how big that market is and how much money you could be making with it. And that's just scratching the surface. Whether you're growing your app or building a new one, app figures has the tools you need that will reduce the risk but also get you more downloads. You don't need a large budget or a data science degree to do this kind of thing. AppFigures has made it affordable and simple. On top of tools, AppFigures also provides a lot of great guides and tutorials to take you step-by-step through gaining more visibility with ASO and increasing your revenue by learning from your competitors. They just released a free guide on that, actually. So go ahead, head to the link in the show notes, and try AppFigures for free. If you like it, use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Thank you, AppFigures, for sponsoring our show. Have you tried the LG? I know people hate the LG, but you're pretty much like, that's going to be a piece of junk, or do you think it's going to be usable, or what? So... I that's probably what I'll end up getting. I think that's likely. I think I saw something from CES that maybe uh, there will be a, an ultra fine OLED display, 
Okay. Uh, that's uh, really interesting, but if it's the same price as the Pro Display XDR, then <laughs> uh, there's no point in me getting it. Uh, but right, right. But I mean, I have like, and I I don't know anything about display technology. So if our listeners know more than me, I'm sorry. But like, I have a I don't know 60 inch OLED TV on my living room, and it. It was it was less expensive than the Pro Display XDR, so <laughs> I guess it's possible to make a, an external display with an OLED panel that doesn't cost like a kidney or something. Yeah, or at least a couple of kidneys. <laughs> yeah, I I know what you mean. I mean, I use I don't use an external display like for my for my, my MacBook Air because that's what the iMac is for is for a bigger display. But yeah, I totally understand. Speaking of which, I want to talk about the other thing that I think people have been mentioning about these new devices that I think is the biggest improvement is battery life. Like you said, like it's just you don't need to be plugged in very often. It's almost like running an iPad in a lot of ways where it's just like the battery barely ever goes down. Now, usually I use it plugged in, but like, yeah, I'm amazed at how long the battery lasts without having to like recharge it. And I like the new way where it knows how to extend the battery life by not necessarily by using only the power from the plug sometimes and being able to figure out, okay, like he doesn't really need to charge his battery right now. He just needs to use the power. And then sometimes it'll figure out, okay, now you can go ahead and charge your battery and you, you have some control over that as opposed to using the battery at all. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And mine is actually doing that right now. So when I click the battery icon, it shows uh, battery on hold, a hundred percent power source, power adapter. So it's using yeah. the the power adapter for power, and and just just leaving the battery alone. And I've seen uh some uh, circumstances where it charged to like eighty percent and then stopped. Yep. For the optimized charging thing. And I know like iPhones have been doing that for for at least a couple of years. So it's really cool to see that brought into a device that's so like power efficient energy efficient um it's really great to see that yeah definitely and uh, i i have noticed the battery life thing again and it kind of makes the port situation a little bit less annoying like yesterday i was going to do a live podcast recording with video so i used a uh, camel in order to use my iphone as a webcam so I needed two USB ports, one for the mic and one for the iPhone. And I don't have a hub here. Uh, mm-hmm. I never felt the need to have one. Uh, and um, I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. I need one port for charging, one for the mic and one for the iPhone. And then I realized, no, wait, this is an M1 MacBook Air. I can yep. <laughs> record on battery life. And um, we did the recording for like almost three hours. And yeah, exactly. by the end of it, it's, it still had like 70 something percent batteries. So yeah, it's ama- it's It's amazing. One other positive, you mentioned USB, but before we get into that, one po- other positive that I'm going to mention that a lot of people are probably going to disagree with, but for me, uh, it was a big improvement. Honestly, like the webcam is actually a big improvement for me. It's not as good as my Logitech that I have hooked up to my iMac, but it like I do notice a difference in the quality of the video on my webcam as opposed to um, what I had previously with my MacBook Pro. 
So I'll say like, I actually do think the webcam is an improvement and it's decent. It's good quality, which is of course the bare minimum you could do in these times. If you know what I mean, where a lot of people are using their <laughs> webcam quite a bit. Yeah. I never really cared much for the webcam. Like, uh, it, it's a known issue for me. Like, uh, I think they're fine. They're not, they haven't been really good or something you can use to like make a, a good quality YouTube video or something. But Let's be honest, like when you're making a call uh, or, or like a video conference over Zoom or Google Meets or, or Skype or whatever, the quality sucks anyway. Like you can have the best right. camera and it's going to compress it so much that it looks bad anyway. So I, I don't see, I think I always look at these uh, reviews and things uh, talking about the camera and I feel like they're just trying to find something to complain about because like who cares like i i really don't care about the are the there like quality like on a surface pro like or whatever people use um you know an acer or an asus or whatever like do they have like particularly great like webcams like i just don't think i would never think a built-in webcam that would come with a laptop is ever going to be the top quality like like you said it just needs to be good enough for a work conference call it doesn't need to be like you're going to be you know doing you know youtube videos or anything like that right yeah, I think this goes a bit into the numbers, uh, the marketing numbers thing that uh, really I, I really don't care about, which is, oh, but it's still a 720p webcam. Oh, my God. But in practice, like no one notices. So why bother? Right. Right. You have to have decent bandwidth to even like send that quality of video anyways, if you're doing I don't think there's a, I, I, I mean, I mean, FaceTime on iOS can do, I think, 1080 uh, FaceTime. But I don't think, like, you can... Zoom will do 1080p video. I don't think that's a thing. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I I think it's very good for a typical conference call. Is it good enough for, like, producing video? No, but usually those people buy... are buying something more expensive anyways, like an external webcam anyway so it's like it seems a little bit like you said a a ridiculous argument yeah and let's be honest most people who have a mac also have an iphone which is going to have a better camera so if you need to record a video use your iphone and if you (laughs) want to look better in a conference call get something like camo or some of these other solutions that lets you use your iphone as a webcam and you're set so I, now I'm going to go into my biggest pet peeve with this new device, which is it has nothing to do with this particular device, but just overall with this whole switch over. And I'll preface this by saying the only device in my whole house that used USB-C uh, was my Nintendo Switch. Like, I this is a my first major USB-C device in this whole entire house, which is pretty crazy to think about. But I, um, I don't really care for USB-C. <laughs> um, I bought like four things off of Amazon knowing full well that I had like, I, I have to be able to plug in all these old peripherals that use USB-C. Dongle life. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's my introduction to dongle life. So like I bought, I bought a couple of hubs. I bought like some of these essentially dongles, uh, like really small dongles that go USB A to USB C. I bought, um, I bought a thing that takes like my old MacBook Pro power adapter and 
Uh, you can plug it in. It uses the mag, it has MagSafe on one end and USB-C on the other. I got, what else did I get? I bought a bunch of stuff because I knew it was like, I don't know what's going to work. I don't know what's the best fit. And I think about half of those things like were worked and were solid. I returned. Oh, I got this like USB-C to like, I don't know what it's called. It's, it's USB-C, but it has like, it's for external hard drives typically. And it has kind of like an eight shape with a flat on one end. Oh yeah. I, I don't, USB-C. It's nothing universal about USB-C. Anyway, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's like been my biggest headache. I kept, I kept this one USB-C to USB-A hub and I kept the mag safe to USB-C, but everything else I returned to Amazon. It was just like, none of this stuff works. Even, even the, the current stuff that I have, the USB-C to USB-A, sometimes the mouse gets disconnected uh. and sometimes the uh, keyboard gets disconnected. I'll just unplug it and plug it back in. But um, I was just like, I don't know. That's, that's my rant. I have some advice uh, for uh, listeners and, uh, I'm going to say, and of course you can find people who will say the opposite, but I will strongly recommend against buying any adapter that Apple offers from another manufacturer. So if Apple has an Apple branded adapter for the thing you need, get the Apple one because that that one is going to work. And it's going to be durable. At least that's my experience. You can probably find people out there who like their adapter broke in a month or something. But and I guess I'm in a sense uh, I'm a minimalist in a way because I I don't plug a bunch of stuff into my computer all the time. Uh, so I've been using USB C for a long time. Uh, I got like the first. 2016 MacBook Pro with the um, USB-C ports. And I have just three dongles, uh, and that's it. I have uh, an Apple USB-C to USB-A adapter. I have another one from Apple, which has, I think it's HDMI, uh, power pass-through, and USB-A. And I have a USB-C to display link adapter. Those are the only dongles I have, and and they are enough for me. But I know that like maybe I'm different because I, I see a lot of people um, talking about the M1 Max and saying how they can use them because they need to connect two external displays. Like that's just not a thing for me. I'm I don't no, want to I... be like on the Matrix with five displays and uh, like the the stereotypical hacker you see in movies and things <laughs> like that. Uh, that's not how I work, uh, but I, I will strongly recommend if you need dongles. I know the Apple ones are expensive, but I guess they're they, expensive for a reason. Right, right. I think like my, like I don't use that much either. I wouldn't say I use a keyboard. I use a mouse because I have my laptop on like a stand typically. Um at my at my other desk, and then I'll have uh, I have an external hard drive for Time Machine, and then power adapter. Um, like at the power adapter, it was like oh maybe I can reuse this and keep the other one in the backpack, and I'm that actually has been working out really well. But then like I just wanted something for external hard drive, keyboard, mouse, and um, my existing ones, and it was just like that's three devices right there, and it would uh, it'd be nice to have a hub. Like unfortunately, I don't think Apple sells any. USB-C to USB-A hubs per, per se, but man, it'd be nice if they did. I'd buy it. Yeah, definitely. I think with keyboard and, and mice, you can uh, kind of solve the problem by using Bluetooth uh, hardware. Yeah, right. Uh, but that introduces another 
temporary issue, which is uh, just to acknowledge here, there are some uh, Bluetooth issues on uh, M1 Max, but also Big Sur in general. But Apple has already said that they are aware and that this is going to be fixed with a software update. So I've seen some people complain about mice and keyboard disconnecting randomly uh, over Bluetooth with these uh, M1 Max. But that's more like a Big Sur issue. But fortunately, it's software. So yeah, it will probably be fixed soon. Now, I do use the built-in keyboard, and I do like that. And I do, it's my introduction to Touch ID. I actually use that quite a bit. That's Touch ID awesome. is amazing, yeah. Yes, yes. Like, while I haven't gotten the um, Touch Bar, this is, I do have Touch ID, and it's, like, really nice um, as far as getting passwords to work. So, yeah, and I, I don't want to do a Bluetooth keyboard. I like my mechanical keyboard. It's awesome. <laughs> I don't know. Like... Yeah, you're probably right. And I do have a spare Apple keyboard that I could probably use. But like, uh, uh, yeah. That'll yeah. be a fun I, I get DIY project. Turn your mechanical keyboard into a Bluetooth keyboard. I have turned it into an iPad keyboard because I do have the USB-A to Lightning. And it, it it's a little bit uncomfortable for the other patrons at the coffee shop to have to hear me <laughs> click. But uh, it does work really well. So I, I will say that. Nice. So how have things worked out as far as like software compatibility is concerned? Like you, you installed Rosetta, right? Yeah, of course. It was like one of the first things I did. Okay. Cause I didn't, and we can get into Ooh. that and I'm probably making a foolish mistake. My previous <laughs> guest says that I was a fool for not putting Rosetta and going with it, but uh, I'll let you start and talk about like any software compatibility issues you've run into, if any. Yeah. So, um, I, I I was aware of things that wouldn't work initially, uh, things such as Docker. And uh, Docker now has, apparently, uh, a build that will work with uh, M1, but it's a beta, so it's not like really something you should use day-to-day. But my usage of Docker is quite limited, and it's not something that I'll need like, in the next three months or something. So I can comfortably wait until Docker has the their version for M1 Max. So that's not a big issue for me. Uh, what I've done uh, with like command line tools and things like that, which are not ready yet, is uh, a trick that I've seen um, shared somewhere. I don't remember who was the the original creator of this idea, but... You can duplicate the uh, terminal app. So what I've done is I've duplicated terminal and I renamed it to like Terminal Rosetta. And in the Get Info pane, you can tell it to run under Rosetta. And since terminal is running under Rosetta, every command line tool that runs inside of it is also going to go through Rosetta. And everything within will think it's running on an Intel Mac. Because the main issue that happens when you try to install like a pre-built command line package uh, using something like a package manager, is it's going to tell you, oh, we don't have a build for ARM64 Darwin or something. But if you do it, it through this uh, Rosera terminal trick, after that piece of software is installed, you can then run it from regular terminal so non-Rosetta terminal, and it, it, it will actually run through Rosetta. So, for instance, you mentioned FFmpeg. I didn't know of the Apple Silicon thing, the, the build that you used. 
So I, I installed regular FFmpeg using Homebrew through this Rosetta duplicate of Terminal, but I can now run FFmpeg as I would normally do from regular Terminal. So it's only during installation that you have to use this trick, and afterwards Rosetta will kick into gear when you actually run one of these. Yeah, and I'll try to find a link to that, how to run Terminal in Rosetta in the shout out. So I'll have that there, but yeah, it's because what it does is it essentially, like you said, you're creating a whole separate environment where it thinks it's running on an Intel Mac and then it's good to go. Yeah. And you can actually run both at the same time if you want. So you can have the Apple Silicon terminal and the Rosetta terminal running uh, concurrently if you want. Uh, so yeah, it's been fine. And, and, even I mentioned the, the the company projects and it uses CocoaPods and I was able with without a problem to install Ruby and run a bundle and run bundle exact CocoaPods install and it all worked. So that was a, a good surprise. I'm also using uh, Fastlane, which I used for some of my projects and it's working just fine. So I have decided to take right now and I'm going to see how long I can do this. I've not installed Rosetta on my Mac and I'm surprised at how many applications I've been able to get working without Rosetta um, alone. So first of all, there's homebrew, which I use a lot. There's a hack to run homebrew on arm by using like the op directory. And I'll provide a link in the show notes that works. That works great. What ends up happening is you'll, you'll install some sort of app through homebrew and then you try to run it. And it's like, yeah, I don't understand what CPU architecture this is. Yeah. Like that's, that's the only failure point I've seen with, with homebrew is that you'll install it probably because it copies binaries. Right. But then yeah. it doesn't realize until it's too late. Oh yeah. This binary that you have is not compatible with the CPU. So there's a build for Slack. So Slack works. There's, uh, I don't know Skype actually it works because I'm doing this right now. We're talking through Skype and I'm so using my iMac. I've installed Skype here for this recording. I, did, I, ha- I hadn't installed it before. And judging by how long it took to launch the first time, I would say is probably it's probably Intel. Rosetta. Yeah. yeah. I can actually okay. check here. My email program, Spark doesn't work, which is fine. They'll probably put out a build uh, sooner. Uh, Kaleidoscope, that didn't work because that uses, I use that for file merging. And I think he said he's going to have a release out pretty soon. So Skype that. is still uh, on Intel. Like, yep. yep. Uh, I use Sky fonts to mon- manage my fonts. That wasn't available. I use Discord sometimes. There's a few dev groups that are in Discord. They So they have the thing where they're using Electron. Electron has been upgraded. So apps like Slack, like I said, which use Electron, that works fine without Rosetta. But I guess Discord still uses an older version of Electron. So I could just use the web front end for that. But the big one for me, the big three are... Uh, the Google apps, which is like the Google Drive and the Google File Stream, that still doesn't work. And I don't know if that works even on Rosetta. So that's one app that's a pain in the neck. And then Docker, even though there's that beta, I believe the beta still requires Rosetta for some stuff. So you can't like, even though Docker would work with Rosetta, it doesn't work. You like, you still requires Rosetta um, in order to get Docker to work. And I'm looking at our previous guest's blog article, uh, Sven had out about his, uh, the way he does 
uh, run stuff. And I might go with that route instead. And then CocoaPods uh, does not work without Rosetta because there's a FFI library that it requires that still requires Intel. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, as long as the project doesn't use CocoaPods or I don't need Docker, uh, I'm pretty much good to go. So until that, that breaking point happens, I'm going to stick with not installing Rosetta, uh, whether that's foolish or not, you know, that's up to you, but um, it's an interesting so far experiment it's working, at least. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just like, if I can get away with running as many and finding apps that are just native Apple Silicon, that'd be the best way to go and going with that alternative. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think we can appreciate uh, how good this transition has been because it's been a couple of months, really, and with a holiday in, in the middle, which is kind of like during the the last part of December, most companies, they kind of go into shutdown for a while. Um, and uh, the I'm surprised to see the amount of stuff that has already adopted Apple Silicon. And even the ones that haven't adopted it uh, fully in production yet have like a beta, like for for instance, Slack. I, I thought Slack would be like the last one to adopt uh, Apple Silicon, but no, like uh, I think like a week after they already yeah. had, a, had a beta. I also have a beta of Photoshop here, which is already on Apple Silicon. I know they have a beta for Adobe Audition as well on Apple Silicon, but I, I, I'm i still using the Rosetta one because I kind of don't want to use a beta for this uh, mission critical thing, which is uh, editing the podcast. And uh, ignoring all of that for regular people who are not crazy like you and want to not install Rosetta, <laughs> uh, you don't really notice. Like The most you'll notice is the first time you launch an app that's going through Rosetta, it's going to take slightly longer because it's actually doing the translation. Uh, but after that, like I I've been using this machine... As a regular computer, without thinking all the time, oh, is this Rosetta? Is this Apple Silicon? Even though I'm a, a developer, the only time when that became like a thing that I had to think about was with the entire command line stuff, which most users don't need. So I think anyone can go into an Apple store and buy one of these if they're like a normal user, not a developer, and they'll not even know that there's anything different about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I think, it, like you said, I don't think I, I can totally get away with installing Rosetta and be perfectly <laughs> fine. One thing was I used uh, GIMP to do some of my editing, uh, like graphics and things like that. And I ended up, I, I just, it was a pain in the neck to get it to work. So I've ended up buying like Pixelmator and that's been an awesome app. I really like that. It's really well designed. And I was like, I was always like GIMP kind of sucks. It does <laughs> everything, but it's not organized very well, uh, especially on the Mac. So I was like, you know what? This is my time to, to buy Pixelmator. And I built, bought that and that's been fantastic. Yeah. And they have some really cool machine learning stuff that they do, which takes advantage of the neural engine. So it's really cool. So before we close out, what plans do you have for some of your apps that you're working on uh, this year? Yeah, so um, I, I'm developing AirBuddy still. Um, there's a bunch of automation stuff that I want to do with it, which uh, didn't make the cut for the 2.0. Uh, so been working on that. Uh, also 
for FusionCast, I want to explore a little bit uh, some of the, the capabilities of the M1. Uh, I have my the version that's out there currently is Apple Silicon ready, but I haven't like done any optimizations. Uh, so it's basically compiled for Apple Silicon and it runs great and faster than Intel. But I'm looking into some things I might be able to do to take more advantage of the uh, performance capabilities of M1 Max. So currently that's what I plan on doing and um, there's also some other new stuff I want to do this year, especially now that I'm going full indie, I'm going to have some more time to work on my stuff. So keep an eye out for that. That's awesome. Thank you, Guy, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm at underscore insights, and I also do stack trace on uh, 925mac.com. So you can subscribe to that one as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. If you could take some time to post a review in Apple Podcast or Google Podcast, I'd really appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. Let me know if you have any comments or questions about your Mac uh, M1 Mac, and we'd love to hear them on Twitter. So post me a comment if you have any questions or comments about today's episode. Thank you again, and I look forward to talking to you again in our next episode. Mm-hmm.